dear son I cut me a cane pole Good morning, good morning, good morning, sweet, beautiful Texas and beyond. <laughs> Cable Smith, welcoming everybody to the Lone Star Outdoors show, Catfish Fishing, a little Guthrie Canard to kick things off for us here today. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Also want to thank uh, Dallas Safari Club, our title sponsor, as well as Lone Star Beer and Hoth Power Polaris. And thanks to you guys and gals for tuning in. We've got a great show lined up for you here so uh, you know what to do by now pull up that stool a little closer to the campfire pour yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat up old stanley thermos because we're ready to get down to it and off the top we'll be joined by texas game warden captain josh koenig uh captain koenig actually headed up a recent two-year sting operation into houston's illegal black market fish trade uh something that you know i didn't think was really that prevalent in major u.s metropolitan cities apparently it's rampant as far as the number of restaurants and fish markets willing to purchase fish on the black market and then sell it to you and i the consumer uh the percentage of restaurants that were willing to uh do the deal with the devil so to speak was about 50%. And so Captain Koenig will be here to talk about how his department went about conducting this multi-year undercover operation, which at the end of the day is all about conservation and the health of the consumer uh, because some of these fish, you know, the restaurants have no idea where they came from. So uh, interesting stuff coming up with Captain Koenig. Then we will spend a couple segments uh, across the pond with our good friend Carl Van Seel of South Africa. We'll head over to the Eastern Cape and pursue the Black Death. That's right. A couple segments on Cape Buffalo, a species that, man, I hope I have the chance to hunt someday. Uh, truly uh, an animal of lore and esteem and one that must be dealt with with a very high level of respect because it can and does kill people every year. Uh, and so I think that's part of the element, though, that attracts adventurers, big game hunters, uh, and the like to want to hunt this animal. So we'll get into the Black Death with Carl coming up here in a bit. Before we round out the broadcast, by uh, talking some off-season whitetail management with Dr. Deer. Uh, James Crow will be here, a longtime friend. Some of the things we'll hit on, uh, off-season habitat improvement. What should you be doing on your property to make your deer herd truly thrive, or at least have the ability to thrive? Uh, prescribed burns, and then late spring, early summer food plots. What should you be planting in your specific region? Dr. Deer will break that all down for us coming up at the bottom of the hour. Uh, also, don't forget to send in your April photo of the month uh, submission because we've got a Mossberg 930 um, fully camoed out pump action shotgun. Retails for, I believe, 630 bucks, but it's perfect for duck, geese, turkey, you name it. 
and we'll give it away to this month's winner. So send in your best hunting or fishing photo. Email them to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com. Better yet, post it on our Facebook page wall or use that LSOS photo contest hashtag on Instagram and we'll get you entered. Um, what else here? Oh, yeah. And then our 12 monthly winners will square off at the end of the year for a chance to hunt trophy axis deer or black buck with me down at Coons Canyon Ranch in Rock Springs, Texas. Last thing. Let's do a Lone Star Outdoor Show grab bag giveaway. And I've got a bunch of miscellaneous swag given to us uh, from sponsors, some past, some present. And we'll just say the overall value is going to be 75 bucks. It could include ammo, caps, T-shirts, stickers. You never know. Uh, but it's the Lone Star Outdoor Show sponsor grab bag. And all you have to do to enter to win this week's prize is email Let's say the word Cape Buffalo. Email Cape Buffalo to Lone Star Outdoors Show at gmail.com and you're entered to win this week's surprise grab bag. I guarantee you there'll be at least one game call and some ammunition in there. So uh, make sure you enter to win. Let's take a quick break. We've got a lot to get into. Up next, we'll head to Houston, Texas and discover the ugly truth concerning restaurants and their willingness to buy fish on the black market. Captain Josh Koenig drops in next on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Cable here, and we all know that the North Texas weather plays for keeps. That's why you should call my childhood baseball buddy, Phil, with Tech City Roofing. Tech City is a one-stop shop for your roofing needs, offering a 10-year transferable warranty. They don't require money up front or a down payment. They deal directly with your insurance company. Tech City is insured and has an A-plus rating with the BBB. Call Phil Marler at 940-600-8221 for a free inspection. Or email him at phil at techcityroofing.com. That's my lifelong bud, Phil, with Tech City Roofing at 940-600-8221. In the market for a compact track loader? Then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at bobcatadvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of Dallas and Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, and now McKinney. Visit BobcatofDallas.com or call 469-586-0000. Hey, y'all. Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a -a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Hi, this is Captain Sig Hansen from the Deadliest Catch. You're listening to the Lone Star Show? Lone Star Outdoors Show. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, this is Captain Sig Hansen from the Deadliest Catch, and you're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. One of my favorites there from Shane Smith and the Saints, the coast, (laughs) bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. I'm Cable Smith. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Players as well. 
We'll actually head down to the coast in just a second to check in with Texas Game Warden Captain Josh Koenig regarding one of the largest sting operations I've heard of uh, when it comes to the illegal fish market, which I'll be honest with you, I mean, I knew there was an illegal fish market. Pretty much, you know, that's a global deal. But I had no idea how large scale it was in major metropolitan areas, which, you know, you'd think they'd be highly regulated. But uh, before we're joined by Captain Koenig, this segment of the show brought to you by All Seasons Feeders. If you've got a pond on your slice of paradise, your deer lease, or just a place you recreate, and you've stocked it with bass, catfish, crappie, whatever, you need to feed your damn fish. And that's why you've got to get the damn fish feeder. That's right. You put it on your damn dam, feed your damn fish. It's the damn fish feeder, and you can find it at allseasonsfeeders.com. Okay, well, let's bring on our first guest today. Joining us from the Houston area, it is my pleasure to welcome Texas Parks and Wildlife Game Warden Captain Josh Koenig to the show. Yes, sir. So, first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you're a captain here with our Texas Game Warden Division. Um, How long have you been uh, with the department? I've been a Game Warden for about, I think, 16 years now. And uh, been in the uh, Special Operations uh, Criminal Investigations Division uh, for about 10. Awesome. Well, that sounds like a pretty exciting place to be, to be honest with you. Um, but I have to admit, when I first read this press release, um, I was somewhat shocked. I figured this kind of stuff, like you know, a black market um, fishing bust, essentially, I figured this kind of stuff happens in third world countries, not so much in a top 10 market like Houston, Texas. So give us the background on this investigation into Houston's illegal fish market. Well, the illegal fish trade or the, the black market trade of fish is, is definitely a uh, global problem, mm-hmm. not just, you know, it, it's everywhere. Um, we get complaints, whether it be from uh, other commercial fishermen or legal markets or restaurants about their competitors that they know are, are buying black market fish. So one of our first actions is, is to act on that and see if we can discover how many people are actually doing it. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so how long did this inv- this particular investigation go on? This investigation lasted approximately two years. Wow. wow. Okay, so pretty thorough. And how many restaurants were approached by undercover game wardens who were essentially trying to peddle uh, black market fish? On this operation, I think we approached uh, around 40. Um, one of the, the harder aspects of the job is uh, we're – this wasn't a, a full-time nonstop. We kind of came on and off through seasons and, and times of, uh, of active periods to hit these restaurants. So over the two years, we hit about 40 on and off restaurants and markets that we had received complaints or tips on. Okay. Now, is this solely in Houston or throughout the entire upper Texas coast? No, this, this time we focused on the Houston area. Okay. How was this operation carried out? I mean, you guys... Do the game wardens set up an appointment with the restaurant, or you just show up with some fish and say, hey, do you want to buy this? Or uh, Explain that to uh, us, because we honestly, myself and our listeners, don't know how all that works. Well, I mean, there's there's several different avenues. Sometimes they were called. Sometimes we showed up. Sometimes we'd, we'd ask in advance. Uh, we tried several different tactics. The, uh-huh. the same tactics as a legal fisherman would use sure. to uh, to contact the business to see whether there was a need or a demand or or if they were short on fish or specific species that they wanted. So uh, the main goal was to, uh, was to pose as a, as a normal fisherman 
uh, in this instance, though, it was just an illegal fisherman that wasn't licensed. Sure. Okay. And, and the restaurant has the responsibility to ask for your license? Correct. Uh-huh. So does the market. Okay. And so what kinds of, of game fish were you guys trying to sell? And, and, and just so people understand, game fish cannot be commercially sold. So your trout, redfish, um, specifically those two, there's quite a few others. Um, but, you know, fish that can be commercially bought and sold, um, probably you still need to have that license, but uh, it's not quite as, to me, it's not quite as offensive as, as saying, here's a fish that you're not supposed to be buying ever, you know? Correct. Correct. Yeah. And and on like the, the, the spotted sea trout, um, they can't be sold, obviously, at any time. The redfish can if they're if they're proven that they're farm raised. Right. Now, wild caught, obviously, they can't. Sure. Trout, there is no, there's no place for them ever to be sold. So that also leads us to, you know, wonder what, what exactly they're doing with the trout. If they can't display them for sale, or are they displaying them for sale, or what are they calling them, or if they're filleting them, and that's that's a whole other aspect of of them buying fish that they you cannot legally buy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you would think that they'd have to rebrand them as something else. Very, very possibly. Yeah. yeah, which I mean, that's a whole other rabbit hole. Um, okay, so. What other species besides trout, redfish, were you guys uh, approaching these restaurants with? And I understand a lot of these were seized from other, like, illegal uh, catches. Yes, sir. That, that's what we would do. Um, if we had other uh, boats that were caught over the limit or unlicensed guys that were caught, uh, we would take their catch, and instead of letting it get, you know, go to waste, uh, we would use it in this operation to to sell to the market. Obviously, if the fish was in good condition, you know, edible, we checked all that out, and uh, we'd use that product to sell back, uh, as, posing as an illegal or unlicensed person. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the hot fish, obviously, is the is the red snapper. The, that, that that's what everybody wants. That's got a huge demand. Sure. Uh, sure. There's no issue selling red snapper pretty much anywhere. Yeah. Oh yeah, and and you can. I mean, those can be commercially fished as well as Correct. you know, recreational anglers can get out there and, and enjoy about a two-day season. But uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, in federal waters. Yeah. But I did just read this week some positive news that uh, the feds are going to turn that over to state fishery uh, management division. So that'll be cool. Uh, that'll be good because you know uh, we've talked about it with Robin Rikers, our coastal fisheries director. But those fish, even outside of nine nautical miles off the coast of Texas are not migrating to Florida. So why the hell are they managed as one Gulf Coast population? It didn't make any sense to us. Um, but, uh, okay, so everybody wants red snapper, and uh, and there's no way to know uh, once they're at the restaurant whether they were caught in state waters or federal waters. Is that a big issue for you guys as far as trying to determine where these fish were caught? Uh, it, it is. I mean, the ones we used, we knew we knew where they came from. Uh-huh. But when you when like the uniform game wardens do inspections, there's there's got to be a paper trail there. Uh, there's got to be you know origin of where it came from, how much how much was caught, how much was landed. The the NOAA uh, handles the federal guidelines for the the trips, mm-hmm. and so these these commercial fishermen they call in how many pounds they're bringing in before they even get to land. So these loads of snapper, whether it be hundreds or thousands or however many pounds are coming in on some of these unlicensed boats, uh, it's, it's a huge amount of fish that's not documented to, you know, to actually to truly paint a picture of how much fish are coming out of the ocean. So that's one of our main missions is to slow down or, you know, stop the, the black market trade of the fish, especially like the red snapper, so they can get a better grasp on how much is actually truly being caught yeah. and declared on trip tickets. 
So definitely a, a conservation impact issue as well. Uh, Definitely. Which you guys have a vested interest in, and we certainly appreciate that. Now, you guys vetted these fish out to make sure they were safe for consumption. So once you actually made the sale to these restaurants who were purchasing the fish on the black market, were they allowed to to serve that fish up, or was the citation issued immediately? How does that part of the – It it depends on case-by-case scenario. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, some, some, some were immediately – some were, were let go because they were perfectly fine, nothing was wrong with them. It would be the same as – the commercial fish from selling them. Right. It, just, it, dep- it was just case by case. Sure. I didn't know if you, you know, you're trying to build a bigger case against some of these establishments, and so you just, you know, let it let it go once or twice. So and... there are there there are some still ongoing investigations with some some markets in the area. Okay. Um, so you said y'all frequented 40 uh, dining establishments. How about how many of those actually were willing to purchase fish illegally? It ended up being right about 50 percent. On, on this this operation, I think the numbers were close to 40, and I believe 19 total restaurants and markets purchased, mm-hmm. about 50 percent. Mm-hmm. And are the names of these establishments public record? They will be, yes, sir. Once, they... once the uh, it goes through the judicial system, it should be public record. Okay. Uh, well, I'll be interested to check that out. Uh, okay. I wonder if it's anywhere I've eaten at before. But um, now, what what percentage of the blame, or, or how do you even track that? you know, falls on the, the seller of the illegal game fish? Because it seems like, you know, like you said, there's this is a, a cause and effect. Here's someone that's catching fish illegally, uh, and then here's a restaurant that's buying those fish illegally. Definitely. Uh, I mean, we focus on, on both aspects strongly. It's just this, this, this operation focused more on the market side, whereas our uniform guys do a lot more of the, the open patrol to, to look for the guys coming in and do the checks at the docks uh, when they're coming in from offshore. So it, it's kind of a, a twofold, you know, approach. Um, the only way to look into the market restaurant side is to do it undercover, obviously, sure. to sure. see if they're going to buy. Um, but we, we definitely attack both sides of the, of the problem. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure it's tempting for them. It doesn't make it ethically right or legally, but, you know, I'm sure that the black market trade, you know, you can get the fish for, pennies on the dollar as far as if you had to pay full price. It's very tempting, and it's, it's, it's very lucrative, I guess. I mean, you can compare it. You know, wildlife is second only to drugs being smuggled or laundered, you know, in, in the world, yeah. especially even in the U.S. So uh, Red Snapper, you can go to the market and look at the price per pound and see how tempting it is for a fisherman to bring in as much as possible, you know, illegally. Yeah. Uh, it, there's a lot of money behind it. Absolutely. Well, and it's damn good, too. <laughs> if you're making that investment to go offshore in in that uh, short season, you know, outside the nine nautical miles, and I dang sure want to come back for the limit because that's a that's a big expense for a recreational guy, you know, uh, from a fuel cost and time and energy, the whole nine yards. So yes, I, don't, sir. I don't know if there's anything better, though, than fresh-caught red snapper, to be honest with you. Whether you cook it or eat it raw, it doesn't matter to me. Just give it to me, right? <laughs> I agree. <laughs> well, cool. Well, hey, man, this is uh, it's been certainly interesting, uh, Captain Koenig. We certainly appreciate all that you guys are doing to protect our fisheries, our resources, and uh, and make sure that uh, they are viable for for my kids and your kids and and their kids. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Well, take care. Yes, sir. We'll do. So there he goes, Texas Parks and Wildlife Captain Josh Koenig of our Texas Game Wardens Division. Uh, fascinating stuff there. 
uh, I'm always curious as to what our wildlife enforcement officers are doing behind the scenes. And, uh, and here is a story that, that sheds some light on uh, how they're protecting our, our fisheries. Uh, so cool stuff on that front. That segment, by the way, brought to you by Dallas Safari Club, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. I just renewed my annual membership. I think it cost me $75. Uh, and I'd like to invite you to get plugged in with this great group of folks who are passionate about hunters' rights, education, and conservation. For more info, check us out at biggame.org. Up next, we'll head to the Dark Continent and discuss the Black Death. It's Cape Buffalo hunting with our good friend Carl Van Seal of John X Safaris right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. I want a garden with onions, carrots and beans with a couple back issues of field and stream for my white trash paradise. I want to spend my nights drinking Schaefer light and smoking cheap cigarettes. I want a waterbed to rest my head and a pit bull for my pet. Hey guys, Cable here for Chama Chairs. The Chama Chair is the all-terrain swivel chair designed out of necessity because the owners were tired of poor performing hunting chairs. The Chama weighs less than 8 pounds, silently swivels 360 degrees, converts to a stool, has tear-resistant fabric, telescoping legs, and pivoting duck feet. The carrying bag even has accessory pockets and gun and bow straps. Chama Chairs is revolutionizing the hunting chair. It's literally making all other hunting chairs obsolete. And you can find them at chamachairs.com. Hey, North Texas sports fans. This is Brian Spagnola, general manager of Texas Motor Cars in Addison. My family's been in the car business for over 50 years, and I want to show you the difference in buying from a family-owned and operated business. TexasMotorCars.com is an awesome website that lets you do virtually all of your shopping online. We have a professional photographer that takes amazing photos, and we give you all the information that you'll need up front. You can even find out how much we will give you for your trade-in before you ever come in. I take pride in the fact you can come in, choose a car, and be out in less than an hour. We have financing rates starting at 1.79% on pre-owned vehicles and can help almost anybody. Please do yourself a favor. If you're in the market for a pre-owned vehicle of any kind, give us a shot. Let me show you how easy buying a vehicle should be. Visit TexasMotorCars.com or come visit our 20,000-square-foot indoor showroom in Addison. Again, visit TexasMotorCars.com or call us at 1-888-9-TX-MOTORS. Just because everybody's talking about the shape I'm in They say, boy, you ain't a poet, just a drunk with a pen Over and over again and again Lord, they don't know about the places I've been It gets hard out here I know it don't look it It's getting hard out here That is the music of Hayes Carl bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Cable Smith, riding shotgun with you today. Thanks for being here. And I got to tell you, I am all kinds of pumped up about our next discussion. As Carl Van Seal, my PH and friend from John X Safaris, will drop in to discuss the Black Death. Yes, we're going to head to the Dark Continent and talk some Cape Buffalo, uh, an animal of lore, of legend, of respect. And one that, if you let your guard down, could just send you to that big hunt in the sky. Uh, so Carl will be here in just a second. But first, this segment of the presentation is proudly brought to you by Over Stocks and Bargains. My friend Trent Gilly and his business partner, uh, they took advantage of 
Gander Mountain going out of business. Here's what they did. They went and bought up a bunch of Gander Mountain stores, including all the ammunition in those stores. And now they're offering that ammo at deeply discounted prices to you and I. Whether you're looking for a hard-hitting, deep-penetrating Cape Buffalo round or uh, just dub shot, they've got it all. And you'll also get 10% off your entire order when you use my promo code Lone Star. That's Lone Star when you check out at overstocksandbargains.com. All right, with that being said, let's bring on our next guest. He makes his return to the program, a longtime friend of mine and someone that I've spent a lot of time with in the African bush. Joining us now from South Africa's Eastern Cape, it's my pleasure to welcome Carl Van Seel back to the show. Okay, well, uh, great hearing from you. Firstly, South Africa is looking amazing um, from 2017 with... uh, with the drought and the drought breaking as the summer hit late on um, in 2017, the good rains have continued throughout the summer and uh, our part of the world is looking magnificent. I would say uh, the majority of South Africa is looking magnificent, but uh, from what you hunted last year, Cable, to what you're going to see this year is just going to blow your mind. It's magnificent. Yeah, well, I've been seeing the posts on social media and it, it looks very green, something that was void uh, <laughs> from the landscape last year. So... Yeah, that, that and, and and not only that. Um, this year, the grass cover, the the way the bushes come back, the the numbers we took off last year to get our balance right uh, at our main base woodland safari estate was very important. And then with the summer rains hitting the way it has and how it has continued, it's just uh, it's 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 a green wonderland at the moment with uh, wildlife flourishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the females did a lot better than what was expected uh, with the drought. Uh, a lot of pregnant animals did calve, and uh, they, they're all rearing the young right now at the moment. And our rut is now actually about to hit again, and it's looking good. It seems like the rut may come a bit early. Uh, last week, uh, while out guiding, I actually saw a warthog starting to show signs of rats, and there's one or two kudu bulls with a bit of a sniff in there. So mm. it's uh, fixing to be exciting period coming up with hunting. Right. Awesome, awesome. Well, you know, we're no strangers to drought here in, in Texas, so... Uh, I felt your pain last year, and we had we'd been in a prolonged drought. Oh God! Until about I think 2014, we finally started to come out of it. But uh, you know, wildlife suffers, and then you have to, as a conservationist and and wildlife, uh, someone that's into wildlife management, you have to make those decisions on on how many animals, extra animals, you have to take off the landscape, uh, just so you don't overgraze it. Yeah, and, and and the main thing is to to as as a custodian of the land to realize that um, all will be good if the soil is good. And uh, I think in the past a lot of guys thought, well, the animals were good, the rest will be good. And unfortunately, it all starts from the roots up. And the minute your soil's right, your food's right, your game will be right. Mm-hmm. And if that is an imbalance, you'll obviously see large uh, amounts of erosion, which will affect your quality of your game and ultimately the quality of your trophies too. Absolutely. Well, so obviously I'm looking forward to our upcoming safari. We've got uh, five other hunters coming with us end of June, and I believe the uh, it'll be a little earlier than last last year. So Kudu should be running, correct? Yes, it. it you guys are coming right in the prime of the rut. Um, that awesome. end of June period is going to be a hot, hot period for ratting. I also do believe that the rut's going to last a lot longer this year than um, a regular season. The reason for that is the staggered birth. Uh, of the various uh, calves um, with a kudu 
I think, and the kudu is the main species which we gauge on here in Africa. I think it's like your elk um, mm -hmm. in North America. I think that that's the big ruck, you know, when they start bugling and, and all that. For us, when we start seeing the kudu bulls move, we know it's going to get good. And um, so we, we feel the ruck may push a, a three-month period this year where it will be extended due to varied calving um, periods for the cows. Right on, right on. Uh, well, Carl, what uh, what would you say are the most dangerous species that you, or what is the most dangerous species that you routinely pursue with clients? Yeah, I think uh, well, it's, it's the ultimate. It's black death. It's the the Cape buffalo. It is um, something very hard to explain until you've seen one on foot out hunting, until you've had the opportunity and the privilege to hunt them. Um, you, you can't quite understand. Um, when it really gets down to the nuts and the bolts, it's you on the shooting sticks with a dagger boy staring down. I think that's what uh, really brings home the enormity of that animal, the um, seriousness of the situation. It's him or you. Um, and yes, there, there are occasions where a charge is part of the scenario, but it's something we, we've tried to avoid at all times. But mm -hmm. when you do enter the ball game with a Cape Buffalo bull, uh, the the possibility is always there, and, and one has to manage that. But knowing that and hunting them and pursuing them and the smell of them and hearing them is what makes it fun. And doing it at close quarters, on foot, uh, tracking them, that's what makes it really exciting. Absolutely. And, and while I haven't taken a Cape Buffalo myself, I was uh, able to tag along on, on Glenn's hunt last year. And yeah, and, and there was a level of a high level of professionalism throughout our entire safari, but I felt like you and I were buddy buddy, you know, and it was lighthearted. The focus was still on taking quality animals and, and safety and everything. But once we said we're going after Cape Buffalo, it went to it, it kind of changed. The dynamics changed, um, and it was hey, you do what I say when I say to do it. There's no there's no messing around, no fun games here. This is serious stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, ultimately, uh, we are responsible in that situation that you joined us. It was a fantastic experience having you along, and I'm so glad you were along. I think it's something that prepared you for the future, which ultimately you and I will go after a Cape Buffalo one of these years. Yeah. But, you know, for us going into that situation, we are responsible for you guys. We are responsible for the situation. We know the animals. We We kind of hope we know with our experience how they're going to react. And when that situation arises um, where we are in a 50-50, it's to make the right call and hope everybody else around us understands the, 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 the seriousness of that call. And, and I think that's what we try to prepare you guys for last year, that if things do go south, just stick with us. You know, we, we, we'll get out of this together. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's not quite the same as hunting a, a wildebeest or a gamsbuck. There is that, that factor that... We have lost hunters over the years to Cape Buffalo, and I'll be going into a Cape Buffalo hunt this week. Um, I actually start one on Tuesday, and it, it, it is a different feeling entering a safari that you're going to be guiding big five, dangerous game, compared to playing game. There is a big difference. Yeah. Well, and so on 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 our safari, for example, we were hunting planes game, and you did not carry a weapon. Um, as soon as we said, you know, Glenn's going to be hunting Cape Buffalo, uh, yourself and Greg got out the, uh, well, Greg has the two pipe and I forget what you had, but y'all got out the big boy guns. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm very fond of a, a 416 Rigby. It's a gun that I've had, had with me for a long time. 
it's a banker for me. Um, I've been in a couple of situations that helped me out on more than one occasion. So I'm a big believer in that rugby cartridge. And uh, Greg, he carries the 470, the double, the pipe, <laughs> like we call it. Uh, he's a big boy, so he can shoot that big gun. Um, I'm not as big as Greg, so I make sure I, I, I punch once and I punch well. Yeah. So um, yeah, that's a you know each each professional hunter has got his own um, idea and uh, his own likes or dislikes on the caliber he backs up with. Um, and and for the hunters, we always try and, and say to them, you know, more gun is not always better. Uh, we prefer accurate gun than more gun. So if, if, if obviously the minimum requirement for dangerous game in Southern Africa is 375, and if, if, if you can handle more than that, fantastic. But we prefer a guy making the perfect shot with a 375 than a guy trying to shoot a 500 nitro. Mm-hmm. It's just a different ball game. Once you've let that first shot fly, you can't take it back. So make the first one count. Yeah. Well, and that's what Glenn did. He actually was hunting with a 375 H&H. And... Uh... and- and you guys like that as far as, yeah, it's not as big of a caliber as, as uh, the 470 or the 500, like you said, but it delivers a lot of penetration. And Glenn took that one shot, and that buffalo maybe went 50 yards. Yeah, and, and, and that buffalo went on adrenaline. You know, that buffalo was dead once Glenn hit it. Um, you, when I look back at the video of that hunt, you can actually see him, him crunching up that buffalo it was. He was well and and truly gone by the time he'd reached fifty yards. Mm-hmm. But that's that's Cape Buffalo. That's the one thing that uh, nobody can explain. You can take out the entire heart, top of the heart, take out lungs, and that bull can still go. They have a desire and uh, ambition to keep going like nothing else we know. It's just it's something inside of them, and and I think that's what draws people to them. It's it's unbelievable at the best of times. Well, it was an adrenaline rush for me just being there and experiencing it and then to walk up on Glenn's Buffalo and just see the enormity of the animal. Um, it was pretty surreal. Uh, so so cool to be able to do that, and I look forward, like like you alluded to, to, to one day taking my own buffalo with you. Uh, is it always a wounded bull, Carl, that's an imminent threat, or is a perfectly healthy bull just as dangerous? And, and it, obviously we it, lose It can hunts. be a... Perfectly healthy bull. Uh-huh. It, it, it's so unpredictable, but the the myth that a buffalo is going to come after you, that is a complete myth. You know that that's a that, that's not not the truth. You don't have a buffalo come and hunt you. Um, I've seen some of these programs over the years. You know, I've guided enough buffalo. I've tracked enough buffalo. The only way that a unwounded buffalo is going to charge you is if you catch him off guard. If you surprise him, you startle him. And he's in a in a, a tricky situation where he he's trying to escape. You know, he's trying to run for cover. He actually does not want to take you on. Mm-hmm. And that is when that old dugger boy or that you know being caught by surprise will charge and and can charge. But the likelihood of that is is minimal. But it does happen from time to time, and it has happened. And and guys have lost their lives to that due to the sort of unexpected surprise of that uh, of that buffalo coming at them. But a wounded bull is a whole different deal, and and if you thought we were serious the last time, just getting ready for to hunt Cape Buffalo, we really get serious once it's been hit, and we have to follow up on a blood trail. That's when it gets very serious. Yeah. Well, and do you personally know other PHs that have lost their lives uh, to Cape Buffalo? Yes, yes, I've lost uh, I've lost a friend about five years ago um, hunting 
uh, he, he had they they'd actually uh, hit the buffalo uh, late on the afternoon and the following morning while following up um, the buffalo had circled around and had come out actually at them had hit the hunter and then had hit him and fatally uh, hit him and he passed away a couple of days later in the hospital um, he was medevaced out and he, he did pass away so it's a reality we face um, it's a it's part of of of, of the the game we enter, if we can call it that. Yeah. And it's something that, that we have to bear in mind whenever we do hunt these uh, dangerous uh, game species. It, it's, you don't always walk away from them. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it is also what drives us. Uh, there is that, that, that essence of the unknown. There is that essence of the reality. It's a 50-50. Um, yes, um, I, I like to be that guy that likes guiding a cape buffer, like to keep it... Uh, squeaky clean and uh, I, I don't like the situations um, but you know when it does occur it's to act in the best interest of everybody in the party and keep everybody safe mm -hmm. now what countries do you typically hunt Cape Buffalo in um, I know you and uh, your longtime client and our mutual friend uh, Steve Travis went this past summer uh, and y'all didn't stay in South Africa I can't remember what country you went to but um, I know you travel quite a bit. Yeah, um, over the years, due to the demand by a bunch of our hunters, um, we've actually gone and uh, made a couple of agreements with uh, friends of ours up north, if you can call it that, uh, fellow outfitters who've got concession blocks um, in, in in other African countries. So we do offer Cape Buffalo hunting in Mozambique as well. Um, we offer in Tanzania, in Zambia. And uh, now, you know, also in Cameroon as well, which is the Savannah Buffalo, uh, completely different uh, to your what, what's referred to the Cape Buffalo. And then um, in Uganda, we're offering the Nile Buffalo. So buffalo hunting in its own, is, 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 is it's a varied um, opportunity for the hunter. It's not just one kind of hunt. Um, you know, a typical hunt is tracking on foot. That's always the case. But then the terrain you hunt them in can change from Yombo Forest to our coastal uh, bush we have down here in the Eastern Cape to um, the floodplains in Mozambique uh, to open savanna areas like in Tanzania where we hunted with Steve. Um, yeah, so, so, so it varies a lot. Um, buffalo need grass. They're big bulk grazers. Uh, they will browse too, but wherever you've got that uh, that 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 main main bulk grazing opportunity that's where they occur and 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 the most important thing is and I keep stressing this is when you go out trying to get buffalo do it on foot do it the old way track find the dung early in the morning uh, listen for the birds you know the tick birds the egrets they give the buffalo away they help the buffalo by cleaning them but they also give their location away because mm. the biggest problem when hunting buffalo it's, it's the wind the wind keeps turning the minute they head into the thick stuff the wind keeps turning on you and it's important to keep that in mind because like so many other buffalo hunters who may be listening to the show will know the sound of buffalo who's crashing and you just know you have to start all over it's just dust and <laughs> everything's over for the morning well, I know the feeling uh, in hunting other species, namely uh, elk or whitetail, you know, especially if you're still hunting or think that you are, <laughs> but boom, they're gone before you ever knew they were there. Uh, so, Carl, we do need to take a quick break, but I still want to get into a lot more concerning Cape Buffalo and the uh, the lore surrounding this animal. Um, are you cool to stick around for a few more minutes? Yeah, absolutely, Gable. Absolutely. 
Perfect. And that segment, by the way, brought to you by First Light. Check out the new 2018 lineup. You can find it at firstlight.com right now. Lots of great stuff for the whitetail hunters specifically as they have revamped their entire merino wool lineup. You can find it at firstlight.com. First Light. Go farther. Stay longer. We continue talking Cape Buffalo after the break on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Do you have a hog problem at your ranch or deer lease? We have the solution. The System Hog Trap comes in two sizes, 17-foot and 30-foot diameter traps. After you trap the hogs, take the top section off the trap and use it for another feeder site to keep the hogs away from the feeder. The System is both a trap and a deer food plot fence. That way you don't waste your money on just a hog trap. Call 940-391-3669 or visit www.goinfencing.com. That's goinfencing.com. Cable Smith here for Deerview Windows. As a whitetail hunter, nothing is more frustrating than poor visibility in a deer blind. It can flat ruin a hunt. At Deerview Window Company, they manufacture windows solely for the use in deer stand and deer blinds. All of their windows and doors can be custom made to fit your specific openings. Or you can select from standard sizes, from hinged windows to sliding windows and everything in between. Visit DeerviewWindows.com to determine which style window is best for your deer blind. Plus, you'll get a free quote. Deerview Windows, where visibility matters. Howdy friends, Cable Smith here, and many of you have seen my pictures throughout the last hunting season of my custom 7 mag. That rifle was built by Horizon Firearms. Horizon Firearms is a custom rifle builder here in Texas, located in College Station, and they specialize in extremely accurate custom rifles designed exactly the way you want them. Give them a call at 979-229-4664 or check them out at horizonfirearms.com. For nearly a decade, the Lone Star Outdoor Show has delivered entertaining, educational, and conservation-driven content to an ever-growing audience of sportsmen and women. Join companies like Vortex Optics, First Light Hunting, and Horizon Firearms that use the Lone Star Outdoor Show to increase their brand awareness and bottom line. If you're interested in introducing your brand to our audience, then call Gil at 972-849-3392. That's me, Gil, the Lone Star Outdoor Show marketing guy at 972-849-3392. You can also email me at gill.lonestyledoorshow at gmail.com. Now I'm a broken man I swallowed his pride So I'll let you go If you say it so Then I will abide But say it simply But I'm saying Cable Smith, welcome everybody back to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Getting a little help there from Mike and the Moon Pies. Say it simply is the name of that one. Great tune there. Uh, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks to Dallas Safari Club, of course, as well as our presenting sponsors, Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. Uh, this segment of the show, by the way, brought to you by Lone Star Texas Light. Same great taste, just rebranded Lone Star Texas Light. And you can grab a nice cold Lone Star or Lone Star Texas Light next time you visit Rudy's Barbecue. Yep, wash down that delicious smoked brisket with a nice cold Lone Star Beer. Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas. All right, uh, well, 
Our good friend Carl Van Seal of John X Safaris was nice enough to stick around through the break as we are talking Cape Buffalo today. And Carl, you know, on our hunt, um, our hunt, well, I was fortunate enough to tag along on a Cape Buffalo hunt, which was uh, about as serious of an endeavor as I've ever experienced in the great outdoors. Actually, you know, it was the most serious. Uh, and these are animals that can and do kill people. And once we have spotted, I think it was three or four mature buffalo, and this is in thick, thick brush, like picture the Texas Hill Country. Um, You have to get up high and find them, and then you have to drop down into the bottom and stalk them. And you can't see them. It's not like, oh, there they are 500 yards away. No, you don't know where they are until you are essentially right on top of them. Uh, And so to me, that adds to the mystique, the allure of hunting this animal because I mistakenly envisioned they're just going to be out in open grassland. And, uh, and that is far from the case in South Africa as the terrain is uh, extremely varied. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's, and it's that when I guide them, I I wish I could convey to the listener, the smell and the sounds that go with Buffalo. It's uh, so, it's so distinctly different to anything else, and I think your senses are a lot more alert and turned on. That it's, there's nothing else like it. It's, it's like hunting elephant. You know, it's walking for kilometres and kilometres on these big old uh, tracks of, of elephant, for example. It's just a, it's, it's a different feeling. Your senses are just heightened so much more than than if you're hunting plains game, mm. and and that's what makes it so exciting. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this: as far as the the buffalo's horns what's considered yep. a true trophy and I, and obviously a trophy's in the eye of the beholder but um you know i told you um oh go back to our our mountain reed buck an animal that i knew nothing about and we shot one that was above and beyond gold medal uh and yeah. it was eight inches and it doesn't sound big but you've been guiding these your entire life you've done a hundred of them and you were almost moved it was almost an emotional experience for you walking up on this animal Absolutely, Cable. When I go back to that animal, to even put it more in perspective, your mountain reedbuck was actually just shy of nine inches. So in mountain reedbuck language, that's like uh, 30 inches in whitetail language, you know, <laughs> per inch kind of deal. Yeah. Um, so it, it's a big deal. But on Cape Buffalo, uh, for me and, and for many of my counterparts and fellow professional hunters guiding in Africa, over the years, there's been this drive for a 40-inch buffalo, and yes, we do take plenty of 40-inch buffalo every year, and, and Glenn's bull was one such bull, magnificent. He had the huge bases, uh, he had drop, he had spread, he had everything. He's the ultimate buffalo, and, and, and good for Glenn. So, so so happy for him and proud of him achieving that. Um, but like so many of us try and explain to our hunters, the most important thing about a cape buffalo is a hard, solid base. Uh, the top of his head, what we call the helmet, has to be rock hard. Mm-hmm. There cannot be any soft pigment. There cannot be hair growing in between the horns that is soft. Now, there can be hair growing in between horns, but then then, then that buffalo is a buffalo that will never grow close on the base. He will have a defined horn line mm-hmm. on the top of the skull. Um, so the main thing is to have a defined horn line on the top of the, the skull and, the, and above the eye bank. And that is the most important thing. Uh, that is so much more important than the spread in our eyes. In my eyes, I want to see a buffalo with a bit of a drop, and I want to see a curl on him. But if he's that old, that that curl is worn away, that's even better. 
Um, some years ago, I guided a buffalo up in Mozambique, actually, and this buffalo, the trackers had got to know him a little bit, and a bunch of guys had turned him up over the years. That maybe two or three times, guys had, had stalked this buffalo and got to him and said, no, it's not for them. And and I could understand that at, at, at a spread, he was maybe 25 inches because both his tips, he was that old, that both his tips were worn down. Mm. And all he had on top of his head was like a huge helmet, like a military <laughs> helmet. But but the spread was maybe 18, 19 inches wide, which a massive buffalo spread on, on, the, on the base is 17 inches. This thing was just massive. And to me, that made one of the most fantastic trophies. And, and my hunter at the time was the guy who'd hunted a buffalo with me before, and we saw this buffalo. And immediately we knew this was the buffalo for us. We were not going to leave this guy. This guy had character. He had that white, white facery, no more hair. He was just an old warrior, dugger boy. And, and that's what we—that's what we decided. Decided, and like you say, trophies in the eyes of the beholder. But the most important thing when I look at a cat buffalo, for for any hunter to to squeeze the trigger, that that base must be hard. That gives me a buffalo that is eight, nine years plus in age. And that, that, that gives, gives the hunter the opportunity of hunting an animal that has bred and hunting an animal that's fully mature. Mm-hmm. I think that's the most important thing is that as long as that base is hard, from there the rest is a bonus. And and a lot of people call them bosses. Big bosses, yeah. precisely, yeah. And, and what is the average lifespan of a mature bull in the wild? Okay, this varies a bunch, eh? depending on line activity, depending on habitat. Um, some buffalo can live right up to 17, 18, even 19 years, depending on the conditions. But on average, you're probably looking at about 13 years, no more. Okay. Um, you're not going to get much more out of that. Yeah. Um, and then, obviously, the, the habitat really affects the, the way all game, for that matter, wear down their teeth. So, so to say, well, you know, I hunted a buffalo bull that was 12 years old, and another guy might say I hunted a bull that was in the 14-year age old. Uh, you know, class. It's probably two buffalo in very similar stages of their life, but in two completely different areas. Mm. Uh, you know, you know, degeneration of the body and the teeth in two different habitats. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's just like our whitetail. You know, you can shoot one in North Texas, and its teeth are going to make you think it's six years old. Shoot one in the hill country that's eating different kind of browns, and uh, it might tell you it, it looks like it's nine years old. You know, so. Yep. Precisely. So it, it all varies. In our area down here, we find a bull that is 12, 13 years old is really uh, right at the end. Mm-hmm. He's not going to give you much more than that. So anything from that 10-year-old class, the bull's fantastic. We we take that um, as, a, as a fantastic and a solid trophy. Well, Carl, let me ask you this. As you were a kid growing up, um, your dad, as you are now the second-generation owner and operator of John X Safaris. But your dad did this for a living as well. Um, yes. When you were a kid, did you find the allure of the Cape Buffalo? I mean, was that something that has always um, drawn you in to that type of hunting, dangerous game? It, it has, eh? It, I think as, as any hunter, you, you feel... You feel you want to be challenged more, and as a little boy sitting around a campfire, you listen to the older folk, and the way they spoke in such high regard for the Cape Buffalo, it was without a doubt, you soon realized that that, that was one of the ultimate species to pursue. pursue. Um, there was no doubting that, uh, that that was a big deal for them, so as a kid growing up, it, it was a big deal for you, and 
and and when you start guiding, it's 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 terribly nerve wracking as a, as a young professional hunter to take on your first Cape buffalo on your own. Um, How old were you? I was, now you're asking, I think I was 20 years old when I guided my first one, uh-huh. which if I look back, I, I sometimes shudder to think. So so, so grateful <laughs> for the hunters who, who went along, uh, trusted me. Um, today I'm a father myself, and I I think I make smarter decisions than a young man. You know, yeah. We've we all been there in our lives sometimes when we're, when we're a little bit more headstrong than what we should be. Um, but yeah, I think you change the older you get. Uh, hopefully you make better decisions. Oh yeah, you need to. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I think I do things differently today than what I did then. But without a doubt, growing up as a kid, there was no doubting that that, that my dad and guys around the campfire, uh, guys in his age group who were guiding at that time, uh, that that they all had such a high regard for Cat Buffer that it was always there, and 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 it would always be. I think for my son, even today when we are in the field, my little boy's only five years old, but. When we find a buffalo track, he, he can he'll tell you uh, he'll tell you oh that's a giraffe track, and the next moment there'll be a buffalo track and fresh dung he'll go dad buffalo <laughs> whisper you know so you know that even he knows that this this thing's serious shouldn't make too much noise yeah. you know it's a big deal yeah awesome awesome um since since the time let's just say going back to your dad when he started John X Safaris how has buffalo hunting changed as far as marketability, is it is it more desirable today than it was 30, 40 years ago, or about the same as far as the number of hunters that, that want to chase the Black Death? No, I think it is. Uh, it has five, tenfolded. Um, guys like Craig Bonington and the guys, they, they've obviously been doing a lot of uh, uh, stats and, and, and info regards the Cape Buffalo hunting over the years when they first went to Africa to today, and, and I've had the pleasure of sharing many a campfires with Craig, and we are, this discussion always and often comes up, we do discuss it. And uh, we, we've always said how the internet, I think, uh, more than anything, has been responsible for allowing so much more opportunity to the hunter out there in order for us to market the possibilities. And, and that has grown. Um, travel has become easier for, for folks from around the world. So without a doubt, it has grown. Uh, the demand is there. I think it's the ultimate uh, for anybody traveling to Africa. I think once you've hunted the Plains game, um, I think you've seen that yourself. We, we had that first safari. That was the start. Now there's some of these species that we want to pursue. Uh, but I think the third time, uh, it's going to be Cape Buffalo. I, just, I can see that, in you, <laughs> that that fire has been lit. So and, and you're not the only guy with that fire that lights once you see it. But... Um, to, to answer you, yes, it, it has most certainly it, it has it has been a huge growth in in the, in the buffalo hunting, and it's been very important for the conservation of the species. At the same time, I do believe when my dad started guiding, the buffalo product in South Africa was not nearly what it is here today. The same for Mozambique at the time. Mozambique was in the Civil War, uh, so my dad and them never had the opportunity to guide take hunters to Mozambique. Today, we do. Um, so that those buffalo populations have come back in the last 30, 35 years. Mm. Uh, if I look at, at places like Tanzania, it's always been a fantastic stronghold for Cape buffalo hunting. They continue to be a stronghold. But the countries that have joined the ranks of fantastic buffalo destinations have been unbelievable to see the growth uh, in that. If I just look how we've built our product um, 20 years ago, I don't think... 
a, a guy booking a hunt with Johnny Safaris would have seen uh, us as the as, as the idea of a buffalo hunt. It was a fantastic plains game destination. Mm-hmm. Today, with our thirty thousand acre base, a fantastic um, habitat for Cape buffalo, and the hunt we offer there, we now today can offer our eight bulls a year, you know, into the market as that's our quota per annum. So that's been. That's been the growth that I've seen just in, in our region alone where Cape Buffalo numbers have exploded, and it goes for many parts of Africa. In saying that, I do understand there are some areas north of the border that have dropped off some of the populations for various reasons, maybe political, maybe um, uh, areas changing from hunting to photographic, you know, the different scenarios. But in general, the buffalo... Uh, offer is up, and and there are more hunters hunting buffalo than before. Hmm. Okay, All that, and that just goes back to uh, you know at the end of the day, hunting is conservation. You and I both believe that and know it to be true. And yeah. and you said, like you said, these thriving buffalo populations are just proof of that. If it pays, it stays. And so, if, absolutely, yeah. it, it seems like it's a sin to say that these days. But uh, until you've a guy writing the check, uh, it, it's not such a big sin, eh? Yeah. Well, and and just looking at these, let's just say the local farmers, if they're getting some kind of income, if they're making money off of these these animals, and and Cape Buffalo is a great example, but across the board, take any animal. Um, well, yeah, they're gonna they're gonna see the value in that. Once that value's gone, the first thing they're gonna do is turn that into farmland, and they're gonna cultivate it and try to grow crops there. If the if the uh, if the landscape's not providing any income for them. And, and you can't blame them for doing that. No, absolutely not, Gable. And and in Africa, yeah, I, I tell you, recently we've uh, as as the call it the industry, we we've had a major um, sort of a call it a drive towards what happened in Botswana because it affects all of us. Um, Botswana traditionally has been our stronghold for elephant hunting, and for five years ago they closed down elephant hunting in Botswana. And, 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 and it's a well-publicized um, example now, but for the listeners who don't know, at the time, let's say the 50, 60 blocks that were receiving about um, 80% of the elephant quota of Botswana per annum, um, they all went up for auction, and basically the communities who had those blocks, which was like tribal trust land, uh, they, they had the option to sell those blocks to photographic uh, safari operators who would then put up lodges and offer photographic safaris hunting and the export of the elephant tusk was no more. It was no more. It, it was not an option. So the operators who operated in, in Botswana closed up shop and they moved country and they went to find different destinations where they could take their hunters to for in order for them to, to remain in the business, so to say. Mm-hmm. And now... The, the first two years, there was enough money in the system where the hunters had invested well with the communities and the communities functioned. Well, all the promises that were made by the uh, photo tourism side of the business never uh, ne- ne- never actually went ahead. And soon these the locals who were stuck in the areas, who the hunters were supporting over the years, were now stuck in a serious dilemma. What do they do with the fact that they've got this huge area People have promised that they're going to be coming to put up nice, beautiful lodges, and all these folks were going to come and go on photographic safaris. Well, nobody arrived. Nobody put up lodges. Nobody maintained the water holes, the boreholes. The elephants came and destroyed the area around the natural water sources, and soon it left the locals with no other option but to poach. So at first they were poaching for meat, 
and soon that turned into poaching for ivory. It was profitable. Mm-hmm. And today, it's now common, it's common knowledge that the, the Botswana government has admitted that the biggest mistake they made for the elephant pop- population in Botswana was allowed the closure of trophy hunting. And, you know, we wait and see. We want to see what will happen. Will they change? Will they backtrack on that decision? Will elephant hunting open up in Botswana again? It's such a sensitive subject. But that's one example we're talking about. And, 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 and that's happening here in Southern Africa. And, and the list can go on. Like, like you know, the lobbyists are, are pushing hard every day. Yeah. But we have to take these examples and we have to actually, we have to demand answers. You know, when these things get overturned, we have to know as hunters, say, you know, who made this decision? This was a bad decision. Somebody has to stand up and be accountable for this. Yeah. Well, and it's not uh, it's not specific to Africa. I mean, this kind of crap happens all the time. Um, just take Canada, for example. They just outlawed the uh, grizzly hunt in British Columbia, which has been all over the news here in North America. And, and yeah. it's ridiculous because... You've got, oh, I think it was like 16,000 grizzlies, and hunters were taking 250 on average a year of mature males. Which is nothing. <laughs> no, it's a drop in the bucket. And you're actually, yeah. when you talk about those apex predators, the number one limiting factor on cub survival and mortality is big boars. They're going to kill them if they see them. And so yeah. when you remove the big boars, you're actually, you know, you're kind of doing a favor. You're actually helping that population thrive because your, your cub uh, mortality rate is going to decrease significantly. So it's yeah. just like when you don't use science and you put your heart on your sleeve and use emotions to manage wildlife, uh, everybody yeah. loses. And, everybody. It's tough. Yep. It's tough. Yep. Well, Carl, great stuff, man, as always. Love checking in, talking uh, today, Cape Buffalo, but you know, next time something else. Truly a treat to, to visit with you from the other side of the world. Yeah, thank you very much, Gable, and thank you to all the listeners for joining us. Um, we're going to be off on safari again. Can't wait to get out there, and uh, we look forward to catching up with you in a couple of weeks' time, Gable, when we're back. Thanks, Carl. Appreciate you, brother. Thanks, man. we chat soon, eh? All right, there he goes, my friend and PH, Carl Van Seal of John X Safaris. You can check out their website, by the way, if you want to start planning your safari. It's johnxsafaris.co. Dot Z-A. You can also find them on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, the whole nine yards. Uh, that segment of the show proudly brought to you by the Pulsar Helion. If you're looking for a thermal monocular, there's not a better one on the market. It's what I've got in my blind bag. And I'll be honest with you, yes, I use it absolutely to hunt hogs and coyotes at night. But I also use it heading into my tree stands to make sure that I don't blow whitetails out in the morning. So, a, uh, a very diverse tool to have, and you can find the Helion monocular by visiting PulsarNV.com. Save 20% if you use my promo code LONESTAR. All right, up next, we're joined by our old friend Dr. Deer. It's off-season whitetail habitat improvement, prescribed burns, and summer food plots, and it's coming at you next right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. When you dig my grave, would you make it shallow? So I can feel the rain Grave Hey y'all, Cable here for Three Curl Outfitters. And whether you want to bow hunt hogs or get after them with thermal imaging and night vision, under the cover of darkness, Three Curl has you covered. 
They've got the latest and greatest thermal imaging and night vision technology. They hunt unlimited, I mean, just thousands upon thousands of acres of ag fields. Or if you're a bow hunter and you want to sit in a stand and wait for the hog to come to you, uh, they can do that as well. Check it out, 3curl.com to book your next hog hunt. Hi, I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800-9-GO-HUNT or visit our website at www.biggame.org. Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffbear for Hoffbear's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffbear's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. Please keep buying your Polaris products from us. Send us your friends, your neighbors, all your hunting buddies, and I promise we'll keep giving the best deals on a brand new Polaris in all of Texas. Whether you're looking for a Polaris for work or play, whether you need a regular Ranger or maybe a Ranger Crew, an RZR, they've got an all-new Ace that you need to come test drive. We've also got four-wheelers from a youth model all the way up to the all-new Sportsman 1000. For your Polaris headquarters, Hoff Powers Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas is who you need to see all or get on the web and contact today. You can check us out at hpolaris.com. That's H's in Hoff Power, polaris.com. Or you can come see us at Highway 84 West in Gulfway, Texas. And folks, Hoff Powers has been in Central Texas for over 50 years now, and we couldn't have stuck around this long if we were steering you wrong. Hey y'all, Cable here for my good friends over at Outlaw Outfitters. This veteran-owned and operated outfit will put you on the ducks, to say the least. I've been hunting with them for, gosh, four or five years now. They also do uh, deer, hog, and turkey as well. They have over 15,000 acres they hunt in Collin, Grayson, and Fannin counties. Whether you want to do a turnkey, you know, one-morning waterfowl hunt, or a complete weekend package with authentic Cajun cooking and lodging, it's all right there within an hour of the Metroplex, and you can find them at HuntOutlaw.com. Never been good at being good, but I get around just right. That's just the way it is, just the way I am, just the way I live my life. Soon as I stumble onto something good, I go and mess things up. Breaking yes, Stops, the name of that one there from George Dukas bringing us back. On the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Cable Smith here with you today. Thanks for dropping by. Thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Players as well. Um, man, we've got some interesting stuff to get into as far as off-season, if there really is ever an off-season, uh, but non-hunting season-related whitetail management stuff. And uh, we're going to do that momentarily with our old pal, Dr. James Kroll, a.k.a. Dr. Deer. But real quick, this segment of the show is proudly brought to you by Lone Star Ag Credit. You know, land is the one thing they're not making any more of. But if you're looking to finance your own slice of paradise, whether that's for hunting, recreating, uh, fishing, or just to run cattle on, Lone Star Ag Credit has been helping its borrowers for over 100 years. They'll do the same for you, and you can find them at LoneStarAgCredit.com. All right. Uh, well, let's go ahead and bring on our old pal. He joins us, uh, gosh, probably three or four times a year to talk whitetails. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Deer back to the show. Good to be here. 
Absolutely. So what in the world have you been up to? Uh, chasing any long beards this spring? Well, I tell you what, I'm doing everything imaginable. Uh, getting ready to plant our uh, our summer food plots. To, we had the field day uh, in March. Uh, been working at a lot of the places I manage over the country and getting ready to go to Mexico to uh, give some presentations down there. Awesome. Well, uh, you know, I figured it was time for us to touch base and and discuss some some spring projects and planting. As mm-hmm. you know, I mean, gosh, the blue bonnets are blooming. Everything's green, and the uh, oh, the yeah. ground's holding a lot of moisture right now. And uh, you know, at least in a lot of areas, especially down here in Texas, I know that <laughs> up north it's holding a lot of moisture, but it's it's uh, the white kind. So. <laughs> Yeah, I just got off the phone today to the place we manage in Michigan, and they they got two two feet of snow today. Expect another half a foot. It's incredible, tonight. absolutely incredible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So as far as uh, for us down here in the south, you know, it, it's getting time to plant. They're going to have to wait a little while up there. Um, yeah. But uh, but that brings us to today's topic. Like I said, habitat improvement and spring planting. So let's start with some basic habitat improvements that you recommend during the the spring and early summer. Well, uh, for spring and early summer, it's it's a good time to uh, if you've got if you got woody habitats or forest, it's a good time to to get out there and uh, and and make some changes in the composition of the of the forest. We we use a, a herbicide mix uh, which is made up of eighty percent uh, diesel and twenty percent uh, commercial name uh, Remedy, which is a a herbicide named triclopyr, which started out life as an antihistamine. Hmm. And we we go through the forest this time of the year and pick out the trees that we don't want uh, that are specifically not oaks, like things like elms and hackberries and things like that. And we, uh, we have a, a backpack sprayer, and we spray the bottom 15 inches around the base of the tree. And when you walk off, that tree is dead. Huh. And it's a very, it's a very, uh, and it's not soil active, so it's a very, uh, you know, great way to to improve the composition of, of the the forest that you have, and so you get a greater air, uh, acorn production. So that's one of the things we do. Um, then, of course, uh, fertilization of of all of our uh, native openings. Mm-hmm. We we have what we call natural food plots. We have a lot of openings out there in the Just brush native grasses and stuff. Native grasses, weeds, uh, shrubs, and we uh, apply fertilizer. Uh, this time of the year, and we also when we come back in every 30 days from now till uh, fall, and put about 100 pounds of, of ammonium nitrate urea on them. It's a nitrogen source to to really uh, give them a kick, and it's amazing. You can create uh, what we call invisible food plots out there if you're hunting on on uh, public land. You know, and they'll let you do it. Uh, you can create these little uh, high nutrition plots. That a human humans don't recognize, but the deer find in a heartbeat and spend a lot of time there. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of, you can improve the native forage this time of the year as well. So then when you when you add in, it's time to it's going to be time to plant here as soon as the soil temperature gets up 65 degrees. We're going to be planting our summer plots, uh, and uh, we're excited this year. We've got we're expanding our use of uh, of fencing to regulate uh, the the growth and use of the of the summer plots for the deer. Well, let me before we talk about the things that people should be putting into uh, into the ground mm-hmm. right now. Um 
What about prescribed burns? Oh, we've been doing a lot of prescribed burns. I'm glad you asked. I forgot to talk about that. Uh, we're pyromaniacs. <laughs> we're safe pyromaniacs. Yeah. Well, that's great. I think all guys, you know, it's just kind of in our DNA. We like to burn stuff. So yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but we've been doing a lot of uh, prescribed burns. Uh, we start uh, late February and we burn into the first half of April if we have to, and uh, that really makes a huge difference out there. We can the frequency of burning in a, in a particular area will determine what kind of plant community you've got. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we have some areas that, that are forested that we burn every year, and that what that does is that reduces the understory uh, to primarily weeds and grasses, and that's where we uh, we call that summer thermal cover. That's where uh, bucks really like to go when it's hot because yeah. it's open underneath and you've got a, a good breeze. Then um, when we're trying to produce native browse, then we burn every three to five years, and that keeps the the brush. The, it does not kill, contrary to popular belief, it does not kill the plants. It just kills, kills tops, top kills them, and then they sprout back out, and it's highly nutritious. So yeah, fire is a wonderful management tool. So it actually improves the soil quality. Yes, yes, it puts a, a lot of minerals back in, especially potash. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, uh, <laughs> the night we after we burn, the night we burn, uh, the deer we call them our inspectors. They come in there, <laughs> look and see what's going on, and because uh, that's a mineral source, and just looking things over, they're very curious about it. Yeah, I was actually driving down to Rock Springs to turkey hunt uh, back in late March, mm-hmm. and I was I can't remember the rural highway I was driving down, but uh, you know back road and. And it's dark outside, and and I look over, and they're doing a prescribed burn. Uh, it was, yeah. And there's just you know, it was cool to see, and at nighttime to see the all, you know the flames and the uh, there and uh, they're out there spraying fire. So, yeah, I'm glad to see that uh, South Texas has really uh, started to to accept uh, prescribed burning. There was a time when man, you wouldn't even think about burning, but burning is is pretty much accepted over most of the places where it's safe to do so. Sure. Well, it's the same thing, you know, in the mountains, it's not a prescribed burn, but you get burns yeah. and, and elk congregate yeah. in those in those burn flats, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Highly nutritious. Um okay, so those are some of the things as far as habitat improvement. Now, as far as our we'll, we'll call it summer planting because that's when it's going to actually sprout, be available mm-hmm. to the deer, but we plant it during the springtime. Um, yeah. So Let's start with the south because, like we said, up north they can't even plant anyway, so it doesn't matter. Right. Uh, yeah, it's a while. But yeah, um, because of this crazy spring weather they're having. But what are some of the the uh, the seeds that you're putting into the soil this time of year that are going to be highly nutritious for these bucks as they're starting to to put on um, this year's headgear? Well, pretty much uh, down here, uh, we plant. We rely very heavily on two varieties of cowpeas. Uh, a little further north, we, we also plant soybeans, but uh, cowpeas, are, they're just made for white deer. They're, uh, they have high yield, a lot of forage, drought tolerant. They, it, it's just a wonderful plant, high nutrition, of course. Mm-hmm. We're, we plant a lot of cowpeas. We've got a, a, a new old one. The reason I call it new old is, is it's one I was working with back in the 80s, and I've come back to start messing around with it again. And, we call it the Dr. Deer Cowpea, and it, it's a little black seed about half the size or a quarter of the size of, of iron and clay cowpeas. And so you don't have to 
carry around as much weight out there and you can actually seed less pounds per acre and it has has as good or better yield and, and where can people find that that dr deer cow piece specifically oh and the dr deer cow peas are available only uh through sendero seed company in san antonio Longtime sponsor uh, of ours that's awesome yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah they're great folks yeah they really are love rob yeah uh okay cool uh so that's one uh say as we go farther west and it's a little more arid uh, i know you mm-hmm. said those cow peas will still do well there is there anything else you'd recommend for those more arid uh, environments? There's very few things that will, will work. As we get, you know, we get out there in the west, say West Texas. There's very few things that will work without irrigation. Mm-hmm. So there, we use uh, we use a lot of uh, uh, native habitat manipulation. We do a lot of roller chopping, and then we come back and uh, fertilize with superphosphate, and that that creates. Uh, essentially, for all practical purposes, a food plot mm-hmm. that the plants will sprout out. When you when you roller chop, uh, and roller chopping is a, you you have a bulldozer and you have a big drum you pull behind you that's full of water to give it weight and it has teeth on it. And what it does is it breaks down the brush, but does not kill the brush like root plowing or some of the more uh, destructive things will do. And you end up and also aerates the soil at the same time. And so you end up with a perfect plant community of one third weeds and grasses, or one third weeds, one third grasses, and one third browse. Hmm. Okay. And uh, the deer, I mean, this that's the fastest way I know of. I, I, I use it a lot in West Texas. I use it a lot in Mexico. Hmm. And uh, you, you really increase the utilization. It also benefits things like quail and turkeys too. Yeah. Well, but we, there's not much you can plant uh, out west unless you can irrigate. It's just not going to work. Right. Right. Okay, well, you know, once the snow finally melts off, uh, you know, let's head north, and and you've spent a lot of time managing uh, deer herds in places like Wisconsin. Um, Right. So for those folks, what are they going to be planting once uh, the soil temperature actually does hit that 65-degree mark? Up north, what we do, as soon as the snow melts and we get some decent soil temperatures, we we plant the following things. Uh, We plant soybeans and corn. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, usually together, uh, and we also uh, uh, plant clovers, uh, both red and white clovers. Uh, in the south, the, the clovers are a cool season crop, but in the north, uh, clovers can be a summer crop as well. So we plant uh, a lot of clovers. There's, there, there are a few places where you can plant alfalfa up there, but the problem is with alfalfa is you got to have the most perfect soil in the world to grow to alfalfa, and you've got some uh, insect pest problems. Uh, alfalfa is the best, the best summer forage you can think of for deer, but getting it, it's pretty finicky and getting it to grow uh, universally for sure. Yeah. Well, and my friend uh, Glenn Underwood, he he manages, he owns that place in Rock Springs that I was telling you I was headed to to turkey hunt. Yeah. And you know he supplemental feeds alfalfa pretty much year round, and especially. If he's got hunters out there, I mean, he puts a bale of alfalfa out, and it's like crack for those axis deer. Whitetail love it too. Yeah. Everything loves right. it. So yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, okay. So once you've got your plots planted, how do you keep the hogs, deer, livestock out of there until they're ready to be forged upon? Well, we're still using the uh, the three strand electric fence that we developed in the late seventies, early eighties. Uh, it, it works beautifully to keep almost anything out. 
the only thing we we found we ever have a problem with is wild uh, South Texas cattle. <laughs> they're they're tough, pretty tough, but yeah. uh, hogs, uh, javelinas, white-tailed deer, we can keep them out of those plots until we w- want them in, and then we've got got gates mm-hmm. that we uh, we open up and let them. We usually let them feed in there until they've eaten half of it. And then we close up the gate and let it grow back and then open the gate up again. So if you got more than one of those plots, you can rotate the deer around your place. Sure. And it, it's essentially rotation grazing for deer. And that, that has worked incredibly well. We, we're, uh, we're very happy with that. We've also developed some techniques in the last few years uh, with small-scale agricultural equipment where we're making uh, silage bales. Uh, because a lot of these food plots, especially cool season plots, uh, when you get into this time of the year, they go into exponential growth, and there's no way the deer can keep up with them. And then the next thing you know, you've wasted a lot of good forage. Mm-hmm. So what we've been doing is cutting them and baling them uh, at 60% moisture, and those wrapped silage bales will last oh, five, six, seven years. So you're essentially drought-proof with that. Right, right. Okay, and about how expensive is that fencing per foot? It's about a dollar a foot. Okay. It's not too bad there. Um, how important is this time of year when you're talking about a buck's antler growth and that cycle, which, you know, sees him mm-hmm. start to sprout bone and, right. and ultimately right. where he's going to be when, you know, Hunter looks right. looking at him through his crosshairs? Well, essentially, March, April, May are the most important uh, months of the year for white-tailed bucks. You know, it, it's the time when they're – they're really putting on their antler growth, and it's setting the it's setting the whole framework. The nutritioner on setting the whole framework for the quality of the antlers later in the year. Now, uh, if we get it going, we have a good spring, and we get get into the summer, say July, late July, and it starts to get really, really dry. Then what you'll see is you'll see uh, uh, antler growth start to diminish. Mm-hmm. They they won't finish out as well, but but uh, I'll probably. At least sixty percent of antler growth is is accomplished or set up by those those three months. Okay, yeah, I've been getting pictures. Folks have been sending me images of you know just the, those little nubbins as they're starting to uh, mm-hmm. protrude. Um, so, um, as far as North American whitetail, what do you yeah. have on that front? When is your next trip, and where can folks find it? Well, North American whitetail. Now we're on at at. at at this point in time, we're on both Outdoor Channel and Sportsman Channel. Uh, and with uh, with reruns and everything else I was picking out the other day, we were on about 10 times a week. Wow. But uh, I'll be heading uh, next month uh, up to Oklahoma. We'll be filming our uh, Building Your Own Deer segment, Deer Factory segment up there in uh, north central Oklahoma, uh, which I'm excited about because it's a different area than we've been we pick, try to pick a different region of the country every year, and this is one that's got some particular challenges, and it's dry, and uh, you know it's got some. Uh, well, next next year you're invited to my lease to uh, to build me a deer factory. So okay, <laughs> that'd be fun. That'd be fun. Yeah. So you're headed to Oklahoma, okay? And then uh, what about out of state trips? You have a plan for next fall? Well, right now we're we're looking at uh, doing at least two hunts in Mexico. We've got another hunt in Oklahoma. We're going back to Kentucky. I killed a huge buck in Kentucky this past year with uh, with a rifle. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, let's see, we'll be back to Kansas. Um, and we've got a couple other states that we're looking at right now. We haven't finalized yet. So we try to keep it moving around. Yeah, and give us the uh, website if folks want to. Ch- I know a lot of the content and stuff is saved. Uh, yeah, well, it's North, uh, NorthAmericanWhitetail.com. Perfect. Well, Dr. Deer, always a treat talking whitetail management with you. And, Absolutely. Uh, I know that we will see you this summer out at all of the uh, Texas Trophy Hunter extravaganzas. Yeah, we're looking forward to those. They're, it'll be on us pretty quickly here. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, thanks again, Dr. Deer. We appreciate it as always. Okay, Cable. I always enjoy talking to you. Our good friend, Dr. James Kroll, a.k.a. Dr. Deer. Always great talking whitetails with James. And that segment of the presentation was brought to you by Scent Blaster. Uh, if you're looking for a better way to get more scent out, then look no further than Scent Blaster. Whether you're hunting hogs, deer, or predators, you just put your favorite attractant in the scent reservoir, hang it in a tree, and walk away. Your wick doesn't dry out. It's the Scent Blaster, and you can find it at scentblaster.net. Okay, uh, just looking at the clock here. My least favorite time of every week. We've got to go. Got to get out of here. I do want to say thanks to our guest. Uh, in addition to Dr. Deer, also Texas Game Warden Captain Josh Koenig, and our good friend Carl Van Seal of John X Safaris. Great talking Cape Buffalo with him today. Uh, we will do it again, same time, same place next week. Thanks to our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of the Lone Star Outdoors show. Until then, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors. Yeah, she did. Well, the sheriff never came calling, and no judge ever gave a damn. Turns out no one gonna miss a dog in coward man. So baby, drag him to the river. Where it runs wide and slow Put a face down in the water And they let that fool go They let that muddy waters Carry